95. Now, I'm giving you a couple statements here at the beginning that I read every week. These are a summary of what the Psalms are about. This first statement comes from Dr. Kendall Easley. He uh, has a book where he gives a summary of each book of the Bible. And in his summary of the Psalms, he reminds us of what connects the themes that connect all of these 150 chapters. Because as I've told you before, the 150 chapters are in actuality songs that were written to be used in the corporate worship uh, of Israel. And they were collected. So really, the Psalms is really a collection of, of songs, a collection of hymns. It's a hymn book. It's what it is. But there are some themes that connect uh, these hymns. And Dr. Easley says, God, the true and glorious King, is worthy of all praise and prayer, thanksgiving and confidence, whatever the occasion, in personal or community life. And so Dr. Easley says the Psalms remind us that if you're on a mountaintop or if you're in a valley, God is worthy of our worship. If you're on a mountaintop or in a valley, God is worthy of our confidence, our trust. And we're reminded of this over and over and over again. John Piper picks up on the idea that this is a hymn book when he writes, The Psalms are songs, they are poems, they are written to awaken and express and shape the emotional life of God's people. Poetry and singing exist because God made us with emotions not just thoughts. Our emotions are massively important. And that uh, reminds us of why the Psalms are so loved by the church. Because we connect, we resonate with the emotions we find in these chapters. And by the way, you can find any emotion you can name, you can probably find it somewhere in the Psalms. And we resonate with that. We see people, again, with emotions of joy and gladness. We see people with emotions of anxiety and depression. But whatever the emotional state we find the psalmist in, they're always bringing it before the Lord in reverence and worship. And we've made it to the 95th Psalm, and I've entitled this from a phrase in the psalm, Let Us Worship. That's what this psalm is about. I want to read it to, to you. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to just jump in and uh, see what this psalm has to say to us tonight. Psalm 95 verse 1. You'll probably recognize some of the, the phrases in this psalm because they are well known. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him who's with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. We pray that you would... Speak to us in a mighty way. Help us to 
understand this text and help us to, Lord, understand how it applies to our lives. And Lord, I pray that as we study your word, you would speak to us with power, with clarity, uh, open the eyes of our hearts by your spirit that we might see and respond to your truth. We love you. We praise you. We're grateful tonight for Jesus. And we offer you this prayer in his name. Amen. Well, notice that there is no author given to this psalm, but we know who wrote it. Because in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 7, uh, this psalm, or a quote from this psalm, is attributed to David. So like many of the other psalms, David wrote Psalm 95 as well. We'll get to Hebrews in a little bit, and you'll see that um, connection explicitly made in that passage. But this psalm is about worship. That's why I titled it, Let Us Worship, because notice what it says there uh, in verse 6. Oh, come, let us worship. This psalm is about worship. And by the way, worship, the, the word worship means um, to give worth to, to ascribe worth to someone or something. So when I say we're worshiping God, we're ascribing worth to uh, Him. Now, there are basically two parts to this psalm. I've broken it down into two different headings. The first in this psalm that we see is an exhortation to worship. An exhortation to worship. Look what it says there in verse 1. O come, there's a, a summoning. Uh, o come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Then in verse 6, O come, there it is again, summoning. O come, let us worship and bow down. So this is a call to worship, which should not surprise us, because in this psalm and throughout the entire Word of God, there's a clear, consistent, and compelling call to worship. In fact, if you had to summarize the Bible, have you ever thought about that? How would you summarize the Bible? 66 books, written by over 40 different authors over thousands of years, how would you, how would you summarize God's Word? Well, I would summarize it as a story of salvation that leads to the ultimate glory of God. That's what the Bible is about. It's about glorifying God. So throughout the pages of Scripture, you will see over and over and over again a call for people to see God's worth and ascribe that worth to Him, to worship Him, to praise Him, to give Him the glory that He alone deserves. And so we see the call in this psalm, which is really a microcosm of the entire Word of God. There's a call in the Scriptures to worship God. And that's important because worship is why we exist. Did you know that? We exist to worship. Over in Isaiah 43, uh, verse 7, the Bible says that God made us, watch this, for His glory. That's why He made us. So that he would get glory from our lives. And so this begins to answer some of the big picture questions of life. Everyone has a worldview, a way that they look at life, a lens that they look at life through that helps them to, helps them to understand and make sense of life. And a worldview answers the big questions of life. Like, why am I here? Where did I come from? 
what's the problem with life? How can I fix it? Those are kind of big picture questions. Well, the Christian worldview says that we're here because God made us. And you say, well, why did God make us? We're here to give Him worship. And so when you understand that, when you understand that it's all about Him, there's something that uh, is something in that that really gives us perspective, right? We begin to realize through the lens of, of Christianity, through the lens of Scripture, that life is not all about us. It's about Him. That's why God made us, for His glory. And so worship is why we exist. It's a big deal. And worship is the privilege of the redeemed. Notice what it says there in verse 1. Oh, come let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. So those who are called to worship, those who have been redeemed by God's grace, those who have been saved by Him. So worship is the privilege of the redeemed. Over in Psalm 107 verse 2, it says, Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. In other words, if you've been saved, if you've been redeemed, if you've been set free, if God has intersected and transformed your life, then you ought to talk about it. You ought to, you ought to say so. You ought to give Him the worship that He deserves. Now, commenting on this psalm, James Montgomery Boyce writes, It is time to rediscover worship. John Stott, the former rector of All Souls Church in London, writes that true worship, I like this, is the highest and noblest activity of which man by the grace of God is capable. Let me read that again. Worship is the highest and noblest activity of which man by the grace of God is capable. In other words, there's, there's nothing more dignified, nothing more noble, nothing more important that you can do in this life than worship God. Nothing. It's the highest activity which we are able to participate in because of God's grace. Boyce goes on to say after quoting Stott, but much of what takes place in our churches today is not worship at all, and many who sincerely desire to worship God do not know how to go about it. And so you say, wait, okay, I, I hear you. We're called to worship God. We're called to give God glory. That's what our life is about. But how do you do that? How does that work? Well, the rest of the psalm, Psalm 95, not only gives us an exhortation to worship, but it gives us an explanation of worship. It helps us to explain what worship is, how it works, how it plays out in your life and in my life. So I want to give you four thoughts about worship, what worship actually is. And these, these thoughts come straight from our psalm tonight. First of all, worship is joyful singing. You, you just cannot disconnect the emphasis the Bible places on singing and music and worship. It is one of the key ways that God has ordained that His name be praised. It says there in verse 1, Let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. I know when I sing, it, it usually is a joyful noise. All right? Uh, a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into His presence with thanksgiving. Let's make a joyful noise to Him with songs of praise. So we're called to praise God with joyful singing. Charles Spurgeon writes, 
God is our abiding, immutable, that word means unchanging, our abiding, uh, immutable, and mighty rock. And in Him we find deliverance and safety. Therefore, it becomes us to praise Him with heart and with voice from day to day. And especially should we delight to do this when we assemble as His people for public worship. So we're called to sing, and singing for the believer should just come naturally. When you're alone with God, worshiping Him, it's appropriate to even sing in your, in your time alone with God and praise Him through song. And certainly when we get together in a corporate manner, we gather together. I mean, part, part of what we do, a key part of what we do is, is we, we sing, right? We, we lift our voices and we sing truth about God so that we can proclaim our love and adoration for God and give God the glory that He deserves. So worship is joyful singing. And I think that's why uh, really nothing that this world has to offer can come close to the corporate gathering of God's people. I mean, think about what we do. It's not fancy, right? We show up, we find our seat, right? We spread out too much. We sit too far back sometimes. But anyway, we show up, we, 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 find, our, we find our seat, right? And we stand up and we have musicians, and we have Travis, and they lead us to sing some songs. We're all singing the songs together, and after a while, we, we stop, and we open our Bibles, and we read a passage, then a preacher describes and explains the passage, and applies it to our lives, and then we sing some more, and we go home. You think, well, you know, if I didn't know any better, that just seems like it's just kind of weird. Is that a waste of time? I mean, just going through the motions of doing that week after week. I mean, we do it every Sunday, right? Week after week after week. I mean, what's the deal? Well, here's the deal. When we do that, we are, we are living out our noblest purpose to glorify God. And we're doing it together. And listen, God's in the middle of it. His presence is there. And he's speaking to us through his word. And so, listen, I've been to, to all types of entertainment that our culture has to offer. I've been to Broadway plays. I've been to, you know, um, professional sporting events. I've been to college sporting events, go Seminoles. And, I, and, I've, and, and I, I've been to, the, I've been to these, these events. The best the world has to offer, right? The best the world has to offer. And none of it even comes close to showing up with you guys on a Sunday and singing to God and hearing Him speak through His Word. It, nothing comes close because God's in the middle of it. It's special. It's, it's, it's wonderful and it's ordained by God. Worship is joyful singing. What we do week after week after week after week is, is wonderful. It is ordained by God. Psalm 95 says you ought to get together and you ought to sing. So on a Sunday morning, we get together and sing. We're just obeying God. Amen? We're just doing what the Bible tells us to do. Now, some people say, well, let's go to the next level. What should we sing? What should we sing? Well, the, the uh, epistles say we ought to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, which, which sums up really any Christ-centered, truthful song. Whether it was written in 1840 or 1593 or 2018, if it's truth, it's about Jesus, then it is a song that we can incorporate in our 
worship. So we've got to be careful not to get caught up in, in preference. We've got to be careful that we're singing the right truth about the right God in a way that honors Him with our singing. So worship is joyful singing. Secondly, worship is deep gratitude. Worship is deep gratitude. Look what it says there in verse 2. Let us come into His presence with thanksgiving. So as we come into God's presence, we're to come with something. What are we to come with? Our thanksgiving. Our gratitude. Gratitude is a big deal. Again, there's a, a, a continual emphasis on gratitude throughout God's Word. Uh, we ought to be filled with deep gratitude. Well, why should we be grateful? Well, God saved us from certain eternal punishment, that awful place called hell, by forgiving us of our sins through the sacrifice of His own Son, whom He sent to die in our place and absorb His wrath so we wouldn't have to take God's wrath. That's pretty good, isn't it? We've been forgiven. Not only that, we, we've, we've been rescued from hell. Not only that, we've been reconciled to God whereby we can have a relationship with Him and call Him friend. Not only that, we've been adopted by God so we can call Him Father. Not only that, the Spirit of God comes to live on the inside of us to empower us and change us, to change the trajectory of our lives. We could go on and on and on. God has done so much through His Son, Jesus Christ. We ought to have gratitude, right? We ought to say thank you. Not even to mention his daily provision and protection and answers to prayer. And we can just go on and on and on with how we ought to give him our gratitude. And when you think about it, when you think about how a Christian has been rescued by God's grace, in other words, everything that we have in Christ, we don't deserve. We deserve none of it. It's unmerited favor. When you think about that, ingratitude just looks kind of silly, doesn't it? To not be grateful, to not say thank you a lot, just looks silly. It really does. It, it reminds me of the story in the Gospels in Luke where Jesus heals ten men of their leprosy. And they're excited. Leprosy was an awful disease. It, it kept you away from everyone else. It was, it was isolated. Uh, it was an isolationist. Uh, uh, it caused isolation. It, it, it was uh, physically awful. Um, it caused deformity. And, and it was just it was an awful, awful uh, skin disease, and Jesus encounters these ten men, and he heals them, and their 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 skin is 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 pure and clean, and and they're excited. You would be too if you were healed instantly from your leprosy. They're excited. They're jumping. They're they're rejoicing, and they go on their merry way. One of the ten says, "Wait a minute. Someone did this for us. I ought to go tell him thank you." And one of the ten turns around and he goes back and he falls at the feet of Jesus to say thank you. And Jesus points out the one that came to say thank you was the Samaritan. The Samaritan's the hero of the story, which is interesting. But one of the ten thought enough of the grace of Jesus that healed him to actually stop and say thank you. Now how silly do those nine look? Rejoicing in their healing, excited about their future, but not pausing to say, to say thank you to the one who provided it. And so when it comes to worship, we want to be like the one, not like the nine. Amen? We want to make sure we fall at Jesus' feet and tell him thank you for all that he's done. Hey, quick question. Don't answer it out loud, all right? This is not meant for you to answer out loud, just in the quietness of your heart. When was the last time 
you just spent a few moments thanking God for the blessings in your life and just being specific. Thank you for this. Thank you for that. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for what you did for me. When's the last time you just thank God for what he has done? Christians should be filled with deep gratitude. Let's come into his presence with thanksgiving. Hey, thanksgiving is more than just a holiday, amen? It's a way of life. Third, worship is not only joyful singing and deep gratitude. Worship is reverent recognition. Reverent recognition. Notice what he says there with reverence. He says, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel. That speaks of reverence. Now, I'll tell you what's interesting here, and this is not in your notes. I'm just kind of a little detour here. What's interesting is earlier in the psalm we see an emphasis on joy, joyful noise, singing, and now we see an emphasis on reverence, kneeling down, bowing down. Here's what I want you to understand from this psalm, and I'll give you an example in just a moment. Joy and reverence in worship are not mutually exclusive. You can have both, and you should have both. There are some churches that gather for worship, and it's all about joy, right? Joy, 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 joy. Lighthearted and, and, and casual and funny and ha-ha. And, and, it's, it's, and it's, it, the emphasis is on, hey, let's be happy, let's have joy. Let, and, and, and there's all that emphasis. Some churches, the pendulum swings the other direction. There's like, we're about reverence. We're quiet. Uh, don't clap, please. Uh, don't smile. Let's let everybody know that Christianity is miserable. Right? So which is it? Is it is it happy, happy, joy, joy, or is it solemn reverence? I would say both of those are extreme. And I would say that Christians should capture in their personal worship, in their corporate worship, a, a joyful reverence. There ought to be both. There ought to be excitement, there ought to be joy, there ought to be smiles, there ought to be celebration. But there also ought to be an aspect of we are in the presence of a sovereign, holy God that we can know only because of His grace. And so we recognize that and want to give Him the, the worship and the reverence and the fear that He deserves. Hey, just a little side note, it's one of the reasons I love Travis, because he gets that. He gets that worship needs to be joyful and reverent. And we see that aspect in our corporate worship. That's the way it ought to be. Now let me give you an example. Um, David. Remember David? You remember when they were bringing the ark into Jerusalem and the ark, uh, the, 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 the oxen stumble and the ark's about to hit the ground and Uzzah, the priest, stops it with his hand so it doesn't hit the ground. You remember what God did to Uzzah? What did God do? Struck him dead because God clearly said, you don't touch the ark. You have priests, you have poles, you don't touch the ark. God has said it clearly in other verses, and Uzzah disregarded that, and Uzzah was struck dead. It says right after that, that David was scared of God. Scared. But guess what happens in the next passage? They're bringing the ark into Jerusalem, and David is dancing like a fool. 
He's dancing, it says, with all of his might. His wife thinks he looks silly because he's dancing before the ark. He's celebrating before the ark, which symbolized the presence of God. So here's David in the same section of Scripture. He fears God. He understands God is a holy God. You ought to take him seriously. But he's celebrating in the presence of that God because he knew he had been redeemed by that God. So in the same story, David fears God with deep, deep reverence, but he also knows how to celebrate with joy and singing and dancing, right? He knows how to do it. And so here's what I want you to understand. Joy and reverence are not mutually exclusive. You don't have to sacrifice one for the other. You can have both. I think that's what Psalm 95 tells us. Joyful singing, joyful noise... But don't forget, he's your maker. Kneel before him. Bow down before him. Now that was extra. I didn't, that, I didn't mean to include all that. Well, actually I did, but I just didn't have it in your notes. But we're talking about reverent recognition. Now, what does reverent recognition consist of? Well, worship is a recognition of who God is and what God does. And so in this psalm, David is just, is just rehearsing in his heart and mind and for the people that are gathering to sing who God is and what God has done. So let me give you four aspects of who God is and what God does. First of all, God made. God made. What did God make? Well, everything. Look what it says in verse 4. In his hands are the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountains are his also, the sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. So David is here celebrating the fact that God made everything. In his hands. Think about how, how immense the creation is and how big our God is, that he holds it all in his hands. He speaks of the, the immensity and power of our creator. It says there that he holds the depths in his hands. When I thought about that, I thought about the deepest spot on the face of our planet. You might know the deepest spot on the face of our planet. It's in the Pacific Ocean. It's a place called the Mariana Trench. Do you know how far below the water the Mariana Trench is? It is 36,070 feet deep. 36,000 feet below the surface of the ocean. That's the deepest place we know of on our planet. And, and the Bible says, God just holds that in his hand. He's bigger than that. Think about that. And then it says that in his hand are the heights of the mountains. What's the tallest mountain on the face of the earth was Mount Everest, right? 29,029 feet high. That's cruising altitude for jets. Think about that. Highest place on the earth. Everest is huge. It's immense. How big is God? He just holds it in his hand. No big deal. He made it. He holds it. I mean, think of how big and powerful our Creator is. So think of the immensity of our of our creator, uh, but think of the intricacy of the created order, because look what it says in verse 6. O come, let us worship and bow down, let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. So God made the Mariana Trench, God made Mount Everest, and God made you and me. And the Bible says in Psalm 139 that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. God knit us together in our mother's womb. Which, by the way, 
We believe that every life has dignity and worth and value even in the mother's womb because in the mother's womb, God has knit that life together. A, a life made in the image of God. And just as a quick aside, uh, we have the baby bottles there on that uh, back little table that we're um, filling up. Uh, with our coins for the Crisis Pregnancy Center in South Haven uh, as a way to minister to them and give them resources so they can love on uh, moms who have are in the middle of a crisis pregnancy to let them know hey, this baby inside of you is, is made in the image of God. Let us help you through this time and, and give you the right kind of care so you can have this baby and, and do what's best for this baby moving forward. It's a, a, a vital ministry, a pro-life ministry. We'll be taking up those bottles uh, all the way up until Father's Day. We pass them out on Mother's Day. Take them up on Father's Day. But th that's why it's important, because God makes uh, human life, right? And think about the intricacy of, 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 our, of our bodies, how God made us and formed us. And so God made. He made everything. He made you. He made me. He is a creator. And so we, you and I ought to have this reverent recognition that God made everything. He is the creator. Secondly... God reigns. Look in verse 3. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. Now this section of the Psalms are called the, the royal Psalms or the, the kingly Psalms because uh, starting in there, in verse, uh, sorry, chapter 93, going through uh, chapter 99, there's an emphasis on God being king. That's what these, the, the, kind of the theme of this grouping of psalms. And it mentions there, he's a great king above all gods. In other words, there's no one higher, no one greater than our God. The God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the God who sent his son Jesus Christ. There's no one higher, no one greater. And, and notice there it says that, that he's a king. He, he reigns. He's calling the shots. He's in control. The creator gets to call the shots when it comes to the creation. Amen? He gets to call the shots. And so he's, he, he's a great king. Uh, theologians would call this the sovereignty of God. The fact that he is in perfect, absolute control of everything. And he can be trusted. So the Lord's a great God, a great king above all gods. So God made, God reigns. Third, God saves. Back in verse 1, let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. And so David is calling those who've been redeemed to say so. And we need to understand that the Creator, because of His grace, because of His mercy, made a way for fallen creatures like me and you to be saved, to be forgiven, to be reconciled to Him, a holy God. And so we recognize that God saves. How does God save? He saves through His Son, Jesus Christ. That's the only way God saves. There are not many roads to God. There's only one way to God. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so God saves through His Son, Jesus Christ. He gave His only Son that whosoever should believe in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And so if you are a Christian tonight, if you know Jesus, if you've been saved, then you ought to recognize that in God and thank Him for being a saving God. Uh, but then fourth, God shepherds. Look in verse 7. For He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture, the sheep of His hand. He's speaking here of God's shepherding ministry, that, 
that when we are his people, when, when we're saved, when we're redeemed, we belong to him, he um, functions as a shepherd in our lives. And he guides us like a shepherd guides sheep. And he protects us like a shepherd protects sheep. And he provides for us like a shepherd provides for his sheep. This imagery is used in many, many places in the Bible. It's certainly found in Psalm 23 where the psalmist says, The Lord is my shepherd. By the way, if you want to read a good book about Psalm 23, I would suggest the book A Shepherd Looks at the 23rd Psalm uh, by Keller. Philip Keller is his name. And Philip Keller actually, by occupation, was a shepherd. And so he understood what shepherds do and he, the intricacies of that occupation, that job. And, and he looks at that uh, through that lens at Psalm 23. And it gives him some really interesting insight into the 23rd Psalm and what it means that the Lord is our shepherd. But aren't you glad that when you know Christ, the Lord doesn't just say, Hey, glad you're saved, glad you're going to heaven. Good luck, we'll see you when you get there. Aren't you glad God doesn't do that? He saves us and then he begins to actively shepherd us. In fact, over in John 10, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. That's what I do. I, I shepherd those that belong to me. And so God is our shepherd. Hey, by the way, uh, being compared to a sheep is not, is not the most flattering idea in the world, okay? Um, the Bible doesn't call us lions. It doesn't call us something that we think of, you know, noble and awesome. It calls us sheep. And, and, and here's the deal with sheep. They're not real intelligent, and they're not real tough, and they're not real brave, and they need a lot of help, which is a great picture of us, right? We're needy, right? We're need we need help. <laughs> That's why he calls a sheep, and he calls the Lord the shepherd. We are his sheep. He is our shepherd. So God made and God reigns and God saves and God shepherds and so part of worship is recognizing this who this is who God is recognizing his character and his nature and how he interacts in our lives but here's the the, the last part of this idea of worship and this is where I want to spend just a few minutes and, and really kind of hone in because this is important because the psalm really kind of takes a turn there in verse Verse, uh, verse 8. Worship is joyful singing. Worship is deep gratitude. Worship is reverent recognition. And worship is listening and responding. It's, it's hearing God and then responding to what God says. So here's what I would say. If you don't find yourself actively responding to God, you really haven't worshipped. God is after your mind's attention. He wants your mind focused on Him in truth. He wants you to, to know who He is in truth and, and worship Him in truth. And, and God's after your heart's affection. He wants you to love Him and, and to feel joy and gladness and he wants your heart to overflow with, with, with adoration for Him. He, he wants your, your emotions. He wants your, your heart to be engaged. So you're worshiping not just in, in truth, but also in spirit. Listen to me. But it doesn't stop there. It's not just about your mind and your heart being engaged. 
It's not about you just coming and saying, well, that was a good sermon. I learned something. And, hey, I felt pretty good when I sang that song. And so I'm coming out feeling more positive than when I walked in. That's not worship. Worship is mind's attention, heart's affection, and then your will's allegiance. Where you say, God, I want you to work in my life. And I want to surrender and follow you and do what you tell me to do. I want to respond to what you're saying. So, a lot of times we talk about worship, we're thinking about our head and our heart. but We're not thinking about our will. Here in this psalm, he's after the will. Look what he says there in verse 7. Here's our God, we're the people of his pasture, sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test. So hear me and then respond to me. That's what he's saying here. And so worship is listening and responding. Now what does he mean when he says there, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness? Well, he's talking about Exodus 17, a story that happened in the time of Moses. Turn to Exodus 17 with me. I want to show you this. Show what these words Meribah and Massah mean. Second book of the Bible, Exodus 17. Now to get this chapter, you need to understand the larger context of Exodus. The Israelites were in Egyptian bondage and slavery. God sent Moses to Pharaoh to say, let my people go. Pharaoh said, I'm not going to do it. Moses said, you better do it. He said, I'm not going to do it. And so God said, if you don't do it, I'm going to send plagues. Uh, Pharaoh would not let it, the Israelites go. He was oppressing them. And so God sent ten devastating plagues on the Egyptians to the point where finally uh, Pharaoh let them go. But then Pharaoh changed his mind. And as they were getting ready to leave Egypt, he marshaled his army to go and destroy the Israelites. God blocked him from destroying the Israelites. He parted the Red Sea. Israelites walked across on dry ground. When Pharaoh's army tried to follow them across that parting of the Red Sea, God allowed the waters to go back to their place, and Pharaoh's army was drowned, decimated by the Red Sea, and the Israelites were safe. They were free from oppression and bondage and slavery. They were set free, being protected by God, provided for by God, and led by God. Now you think, folks that saw all that... Wouldn't have a problem trusting God, would you? Well, look what happens in Exodus 17. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of Sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. But there's no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. The Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and taking your hand the staff with, with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massah. Massah means uh, testing. And Meribah, which means strife or quarreling. Because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Now, the people needed water. How should they have approached 
Moses and the Lord for their need for water. It probably should have gone something like this. Lord, we're thirsty. We need water. And you know that. You're God. And we know that you're capable of coming through because of what we just saw you do to Egypt and the way you deliver us through the Red Sea on dry land. Surely, God, you did all of that for a reason, purpose. And now we can trust you to provide for our needs. So could you, Lord, grant us, by your grace, some water? Now, that would have been good, right? That's not what they did. You know what they did? They said, we'd be better off in Egypt, out here thirsting to death. Instead of asking graciously for water, they're complaining, they're quarreling, they're speaking against Moses, speaking against God. But God gives them water. But, but notice, Moses calls the place quarreling or testing. In other words, he named the place the place where folks fight. And the, folks were pla- the place where folks test God. Then back in Psalm 95, not only does David allude to this story in Exodus 17, he alludes to another story. Look what it says back in Psalm 95, verse 10. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, There are people who go astray in their heart and have not known my ways. They are sworn my wrath. They shall not enter my rest. So in other words, their, their terrible attitude didn't go away after God gave them water from the rock. They continued to, to, to test God and to turn their back to Him and to respond with disobedience, even to the point where they would not go into the promised land like He told them to. So because they hardened their heart and they disobeyed God, that same persistent, stubborn attitude, God let that generation die off before He took their kids into the promised land. And so here's what David sang in Psalm 95. When God speaks, don't be like the Israelites when they needed water at the rock in Exodus 17. And don't be like the Israelites that disobeyed God and wouldn't go into the promised land. They just kept hardening their hearts stubbornly against God. And they experienced the consequences. In other words, if you're going to worship God, it means you listen, you hear God, and you respond with your will's allegiance. Don't harden your heart. Do what God tells you to do. Follow Him. Obey. Respond. That is true worship. Now, how does this apply to our lives? Let me give you just several thoughts. First of all, non-Christians, this idea of listening and responding, non-Christians should respond to the offer of the gospel with urgency. Now, this Psalm 95 is, is quoted in the New Testament, extensively. Uh, turn to Hebrews 3 with me very quickly. I want to show you this. Hebrews chapter 3. If you're still with me, say amen. amen. All right. Hebrews chapter 3. I want to show you where this psalm is used, quoted, to make a point. Look what it says in verse 7. I'm I'm just going to kind of read and comment and just show you this. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, that's Holy Spirit speaking through David in Psalm 95, which, by the way, is a great verse about the inspiration of Scripture, that the, the authors of Scripture 
were writing as the Holy Spirit breathed through them to write down exactly what God wanted them to write. So we believe in the inspiration of Scripture, that Scripture is God-breathed. And so it's, it's not just the Scripture written by human authors. It's human authors writing down what God wanted them to write down. So it is God's Word, truth with no mixture of error. That's a good verse to just remind you of that. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, David writing, Holy Spirit speaking through him, as the Holy Spirit says, today, quoting Psalm 95, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation. So they, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, direct quote from Psalm 95, they shall not enter my rest. Now look at the application here. Verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Now here's the deal with the the audience that the writer of Hebrews is addressing. There were folks that said, yeah, I'm a follower of Christ, but their actions weren't bearing that out. And he's saying, if you continue the direction you're going, back to Judaism, back to trusting in the law, you're proving you weren't truly saved in the first place. And look what he says. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, watch this, leading you to fall away from the living God. Whew. That's serious business, isn't it? Take care. Don't be like the Israelites who had an evil, unbelieving heart. They hardened their heart against God. Don't be like them. But exhort when hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Notice there that emphasis on today. Respond today with urgency. Don't wait. Don't harden your heart another day. Respond to what God's saying. That's what he's saying here. Don't let your heart be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, verse 13. And, and by the way, I believe that, that uh, a hardened heart can get harder. That if you just continue to reject God, it gets a little bit harder and a little bit harder, a little bit harder. In fact, I don't have time to go there, but I, I, I think that's kind of what's probably happening with the unpardonable sin. That the religious leaders, their hearts were so, so hard, they would attribute the work of the Spirit to Satan. They totally did not want to hear anything Jesus had to say or place their faith in him in any way, shape, or form. It was a, a picture of a very hardened heart. Now, I don't want to sound too mystical here, but as a pastor, you just need to know my experience. Pastor Tim, would, I, I know, would, would uh, attest to this as well. He'll know exactly what I'm talking about. I have been in a service preaching the gospel and it's evident that the Spirit's at work. There, there, there are times when you're preaching there's a, like a holy hush that falls over the congregation and, and people are um, very attentive in those moments, just even more than, almost like, almost like you can feel the congregation leaning forward in their seat. There's a, an attentiveness, a, a serious, a holy moment. And it's just, it's evident as a preacher that the Holy Spirit is just, is, is speaking through you in those moments, giving the words to say, the unction to say them. And he's, he's really working on people's hearts. You can see it on their faces, can't you, Brother Tim? You can see it on their faces. And I've seen people hear a clear explanation of the gospel applied to their heart by the Spirit of God, Spirit squeezing them, convicting them, showing them their need for a Savior. I've seen them stand up in the service, 
not respond to the, the gospel, turn their back and walk out their door, and it's almost like you can see their heart getting a little bit harder. Right there in that moment, the Holy Spirit was speaking to them by, his, by the word being applied to their lives. And, 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 and there it is. You hear it. And, and they say, no, nah, no thanks, not for me. And you can almost see their heart get a little bit harder. Psalm 95, Hebrews is warning us against that. Today, do something about it. Don't harden your heart. Because you don't want your heart to get harder and harder. In some verse 15, as it is said, back at verse 14, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence from the firm to the end, as it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? With whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not that with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? Whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient. See, so, so we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. They hardened their heart, didn't believe God, didn't obey God, because they could not go into the promised land. Their unbelief kept them from going into God's promised land for his people. So look in verse uh, 1 of chapter 4. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, rest there speaks of our salvation, our resting from our works, resting in the finished work of Christ. While the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them. Why? Because they were not united by faith with those who listened. So they heard but did not respond. See that? That's the problem with Israel. They heard God speak but did not respond in obedience, did not respond with, with trust and belief. For we who have believed, verse thir- 3, we who have responded, enter that rest. That's speaking of salvation. The, the promised land is a picture of the rest we have in Christ. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Again, quoting Psalm 95. Although that his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, They shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day today, saying, Through David, there it is, that's why I told you David wrote Psalm 95. Through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, in other words, the promised land wasn't the end goal. It was a picture of the end goal. If Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest, salvation in Christ, has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. How is the writer of Hebrews applying the 95th Psalm to his audience? He's saying, if you are hearing God speak but not responding, be careful. Your heart is hardened. Rest is available. Salvation is available. So stop hardening your heart and today believe. Today respond to what God says. Today enter that rest, that salvation in Christ. So the first application, I believe, of this idea of listening and responding is that non-Christians should respond to the offer of the gospel with urgency. And by the way, if you're here tonight and you don't have your eternity nailed down, you're not sure that you're saved, 
If you're to die right now, you have no idea where you would spend eternity, heaven or hell. Or perhaps the Spirit of God's convicting your heart right now, showing you you need a Savior. Then don't email me tomorrow or call me tomorrow. Come see me tonight. As soon as we're done, go see Frank over there. Associate pastor, someone in the room, grab somebody. And we'd love to just sit down with you and, and share with you the truth of God's Word and the good news. So today can be your day of salvation. Amen? Don't put it off. We're not, hey, we're not guaranteed another blink of our eye. And that's not a scare ta- tactic. That's just truth. So non-Christians should respond to the offer of the gospel with urgency. Secondly, Christians, how Psalm 95 apply? Christians should live their lives in a posture of glad obedience. So if we're Christians, we've entered the rest of Christ. We rest from our works. We're not trying to achieve salvation. We've received salvation as a gift from God through His Son, Jesus Christ, purchased at Calvary. That's good news. If we're saved, we have entered that rest. But this psalm still applies. If you hear His voice as a Christian... As he gives you guidance, instruction, commands, principles, precepts. Don't harden your heart. Respond. That's worship, right? Not just listening, but listening and responding. That's what true worship is. So Christians should live their lives in a posture of glad obedience. Verse 7 of Psalm 95, For He is our God. We are the people of His pasture, the sheep of His hand. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. So if you're a sheep, if you're in His pasture, if you hear His voice, follow Him. Respond. Hey, by the way, how do you hear His voice? The Bible. God has spoken clearly, without error. When you read the Bible, God is speaking to you. That's why... Earlier in this year, I talked about getting alone with God. I said, let's, let's stop calling our devotional time quiet time. I understand what, what's meant by that, and I still say that sometimes. But I try to say that when I'm reading my Bible and praying, it's time alone with God. Jerry Bridges taught me that. That's what it is. It's time alone with God. And when I open up my Bible and read it, I'm not just going through some religious, you know, ritual. God is actually speaking to me. His word, His truth, coming into my life, applied to my heart by the illuminating work of the Spirit of God who lives in me. What could be more incredible than that? Carl F. H. Henry said that, that the Word comes to us every day with a fresh miracle. It's like a fresh miracle because every day we read it, God's speaking. Think about that, a fresh miracle. And so we read the Bible in our own personal um, Christian lives. We get together to hear teaching of God's Word. God speaks through His teachers, through His preachers. We hear the Word of God preached. It's all important because it's God speaking to us. But here's the deal. When He speaks, when the Holy Spirit applies His Word to your life, we need to respond And if we don't, we haven't worshipped. Right? You can sing. And you can sit and listen. And you can leave with a warm fuzzy. And not have worshipped the living God. Because 
You did not respond to what God said. So, Christians should live their lives in a posture of glad obedience. When you hear His voice, don't harden your heart. Do what He says. Go where He says go. Follow Him where He wants you to follow Him. Do what He tells you to do. Don't do what He tells you not to do. Obey. He loves you. He knows what's best for you. Obey Him. Respond to Him. Let Him have His way in your life. Glad obedience. And then, third application, or, or kind of maybe not application, but summary of this entire idea of listening and responding. You can kneel before your Creator, or you can harden your heart. Psalm 95, let's under, th- these are your options. <laughs> you can kneel before your Creator, your Maker, or you can harden your heart. Those are your options. So what's it going to be? Do you want to be someone that comes week after week after week after week instead of bowing your heart, you're hardening your heart? Do you want that to be true of your life? Or do you want to come and sit on the edge of your seat as God speaks because you want to be quick to respond, quick to obey? So in this psalm we see an exhortation to worship, And we see an explanation of worship. Worship is joyful singing, deep gratitude, reverent recognition, and listening and responding. May we learn to worship from the 95th Psalm.